Uh, I want to ask you a question. If you think about secular businesses and you think about how the world thinks about leadership, what are some of the essential qualities you think would be necessary? Well, I asked Google that question. I just poked around a little bit. And these, this is my list, okay? But, but I took it from a lot of different websites and a lot of different CEO executive leaders. And this is what they say. Uh, ability to collaborate and delegate. To like share responsibilities with others that you trust. Innovation, creativity, kind of a Steve Jobs uh, mode of, of thinking. Resilience, grit, you may add determination. You can take a punch, you can take it on the chin, right? It's not going to devastate you. Vision, passion, just this sense of, of mission and purpose. Decisiveness, you're able to make quick, clear-headed decisions, maybe under intense pressure. Uh, charisma, you know that word just means you're likable. People like you. You walk into a room and people don't turn around and, and walk away, or they see you at Walmart maybe. You guys know what I'm talking about. <laughs> They see you at Walmart and they're not like the other aisle. You know, people actually enjoy being in your company. So charisma, self-confidence, you may say courage, and the ability to network. That's a pretty cool list, isn't it? And those are noble, commendable qualities that that's a no-brainer for people in the business world to probably possess some, maybe most, some higher-ups, all of those. Um, when it comes to the church, this may be interesting to you. Do you know how many of those made the apostolic list for elders in the church. Guess how many? Not one. Zero. Not one of those. And you know why? Because listen, the church is, as I said earlier, it is an organization. There's, there's management. Uh, there's oversight. Um, but it's an organism. It's a family. It's not really a business. So we don't lead it like a secular business mogul would lead a, like a, lead a secular business. Like Starbucks or Apple or... Microsoft, it's, it's not the same thing at all. We're talking about a family, we're talking about a flock. That's one of the things we talked about last week, is that elders are shepherds, and we are called to exercise oversight and watching the flock, caring for the flock of God. We feed, we lead, and sometimes we bleed for the flock, right? Um, sheep need shepherds. They're the only animal that, has to, that basically has a built-in need for human beings to help them. That's so interesting to me. Of all the animals that God could have chosen um, to call his children, he chose sheep. It's a humbling title, really, because they need help. They're not independent animals. They're not autonomous. They'll die if you leave them alone. They'll wander off. They'll never find their way home. Some of this is review we've already gone over. They'll eat toxic plants. They'll jump into a swiftly moving stream and they'll drown, or they'll just fall off a cliff. Not the brightest animals in the drawer. They need shepherds. And so that's why... Christianity should be organized. We need leaders that are after God's heart, and God gives us qualifications. So the sermon outline today, um, and this is first Sunday, so we're going to celebrate communion at the end, but just three points this morning. Who can lead or who can serve as elders? What are the qualities that are non-negotiable? There's three. Number one, men with desire. You see all of those in this text. Whoever aspires to the position of an elder or overseer, he desires a noble work. Two, men with character. There's a word that we're going to look at in a minute, above reproach, really important. And three, men with skill. And the one skill that's mentioned here is that they're able to teach, not communicate, okay? You can teach and stutter and your voice may shake and your face may get red and it may not be your favorite thing in the world to do, but you have to be able to do it if you're an elder so that you can explain the faith, you can defend the faith. doesn't mean you have an ongoing pulpit ministry or that you're even a teacher 
In the church, in a Sunday school, it just means you know enough about the Bible that you're able to take it and use it, explain it and defend it, especially when it comes to false doctrine. So those are the three points this morning from this text. Um, and another question you may ask is, why am I preaching this? Why is Grace Life Church considering elders and talking about these things? Uh, and this message may feel a little bit more like a family talk than a sermon, and that's okay. I don't get to talk about this very much. In fact, this is the first time in our four years of existence I've ever talked about elders. So it's a good thing. I'm an elder, so it's good for me to remind you what your expectations should be for me. Am I qualified to be the el an elder at Grace Life Church? That's not something we want to hide. That's something that demands scrutiny, right? And so this is good for you as well as it's good for me so that we understand how we are to relate to one another, whether I'm fit to be a leader in this church. I know that's not something that uh, some leaders would talk about, but I want that accountability. I want to invite that. I need that. God wants that. That's what's best for this congregation, for you and for me and for the future of this church. You know, last week, it grieved my heart to mention some of the names of those leaders, seven of them who have fallen or been terminated the last four to five years and some of that is because these qualifications weren't met or they weren't taken serious. Or they weren't enforced, I, could, I should say it that way. Um, but in the Bible, the uh, Scripture says that the church needs elders. In fact, I want to read this text again. This is from Titus. Check this out. Paul, writing to his protege, Titus, and he says, This is why I left you in Crete, which was a big island in the Mediterranean, okay? He said, So that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Paul is saying, look, I told you this before. This is what's lacking in all those churches that we planted, Timothy and Titus. We planted the churches, we preached the gospel, we built up the saints, and now the last thing that you need to do, in fact, that you have to do, is you need to go and appoint elders. And right after that, he gave a list of qualifications to Titus as well. Uh, but based on that passage, Alistair Begg said this, Paul made it plain to Titus that things were not in order in a church until proper leadership was established. Most unsolved problems in a church life can be traced back to defective leadership. So one of the reasons I'm teaching on this is we believe that we're ready as a leadership team at Grace Life Church to move forward and appoint elders. And I want you to know what kind of men we're going to choose and then there's an opportunity, really, for you to weigh in on this. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that at the end of the message today. But it's time. So it's time. the reason I'm preaching on this, one, uh, this is God's will for us, for every church, is to, at some point in your existence, to appoint qualified leaders as elders. Number two is that in Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul wrote that letter, too, to the church at Ephesus. And he says that Jesus Christ gave gifts to the church. And in that list of gifts, he includes apostles, teachers, evangelists, and pastors. He says they are Christ's gift to the church. And part of their role as Jesus leaving them in charge of the church is to build up the body of Christ, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So one of the reasons I'm talking to you about this is because elders are a gift to the church. And if Jesus left a gift to his church, we need that gift, right? And we want to use it the right way and make sure we appropriate the right people to serve in that role. But listen, elders, I want you to see this. It's a good thing for you. It's, a, it's good news to you today that Grace Life Church is moving forward and appointing elders. Why? Because that's going to deepen our growth, okay? It's going to strengthen our discipleship, and it's going to widen our impact, widen our reach. That means I'm not the only person responsible 
for your spiritual maturity and your growth and building you up. I have men that are going to come alongside me and help me, and that's good news for you. That means that there's going to be more opportunity for you to grow up in the faith, to mature in the faith, and have shepherds over you that are in accordance with God's will. So that's good news. They are a gift and, and because we're ready. So for those of you who think, look, Pastor, this doesn't have anything to do with me. I came on the wrong Sunday. Uh, why don't you just meet with these guys? No, no, no. You, you play a very vital role in this. Uh, again, I want you to know what the qualifications are. And also, the Bible says that we are to follow those who lead us. And so I want you to know these are the men that God, I believe, has called to watch over your souls, to build you up, to teach uh, to help counsel, to resolve conflicts. I want you to know who they are, and I want you to pray for them, and I want you to encourage them, and I want you to follow them. That's what Hebrews 13 says. Recognize those who are over you in the Lord and imitate their faith. So all those are good reasons why we're going to talk about this. Um, and I, I probably need to say this too, just because some of you may be curious. A lot of people, when they talk about qualifications for leadership in the church, they say, yeah, you know, that's, that letter that Paul wrote to Timothy uh, was written thousands of years ago. It was another time. It was another place. It was another culture. They spoke a different language, and we all know that cultures change, and they shift, and they move around, and, and you know, there's different expressions of uh, worship. There's different expressions of uh, how we dress, uh, how we talk, how we play. Uh, the food we eat, all those things change. And so, you know what? Paul, bless his heart, he had cultural blind spots. And that whole thing about husband of one wife and those things about temperate and uh, all the other qualifications, we need to bring this into our progressive and modern age and adapt it. Paul would want that, after all. But no, he wouldn't. Um, in fact, it's interesting to me, as, as you read the New Testament and you find and, and compare all the list of the qualifications for elders, they're all the same. Because listen, God's will for the elders and the leaders in his church, it transcends culture, guys. It doesn't have a zip code on it. Uh, and here's some proof right here. I don't know if you can see that. I'm sorry. That's a screenshot from a Bible program I have. On the left side is the passage we're looking at today, 1 Timothy chapter 3. There's 16 different qualifications there for elders. Timothy was a Jew. Timothy was in Ephesus. Um, Timothy was on the mainland in Asia Minor. Over on the right side is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Titus. Titus was a Gentile. He wasn't a Jew. Titus lived on the island of Crete in the middle of the Mediterranean, which was hundreds of miles away from Ephesus. And yet, check this out. The same, almost identical list was given to a Gentile on an island as it was to a Jew in Asia Minor. I mean, almost identical list here. Why? Because God's will doesn't change for his leaders. It's the same. It's transcendent. And listen, I believe it should still be the same today. You know, God's word, that this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, it became part of the Bible. Uh, it's it's spirit-breathed. It's infallible. So we're going to obey that and follow that today as well. Uh, and besides, another place in 1 Corinthians, Paul was giving some instructions and he said this little statement. He said, this is my rule in all the churches. Meaning when Paul wrote a letter, we would call an epistle, whether he wrote it to Timothy or he wrote it to Titus or he wrote it to the church at Rome or he wrote it uh, to another church. He's saying, this is, I'm an apostle. This is God's word passing through me and this is his will for all the churches. No exceptions. So those are the reasons that we're going to look at that today. Um, 
And one more thing before we get started. These are not job descriptions that we're going to look at, okay? It doesn't really tell you what an elder does. We talked about that last week. An elder shepherds. He provides oversight. He teaches. He leads. He protects the flock. He's discerning. He helps mature and build up the body of Christ. But this is not a job description. I mean, there's some inferences that can be made. For example, uh, he's able to teach, meaning one of his roles will be to teach when that's necessary. Uh, but this is just qualities. These are moral qualities, most of these. And you know what we can conclude from that? Character, hear me on this, church, okay? Character is so much more important than skill. Character trumps skill in God's economy. It always does. It doesn't matter what talent level you have. With the list we looked at last week, all those men were eminently gifted and talented. They could preach the paint off the walls in this church, okay? They could out-lead me and out-preach me, but because they lack the other moral and ethical qualifications, God says they're disqualified. God always puts moral character and integrity above skill and talent. Always. So that's why you're not going to see really a job description here. Um, and I also want to say this. For those of you that think, I'm not a man, I don't meet the qualifications for an elder, so again, I'm going to check out. But listen, God's Word says that elders are supposed to be an example to the flock. What's that mean? That means, even though some of these qualifications you may not be able to meet, most of these should be something every Christian aspires to. Not drunk with wine. That's a good quality if you're a Christian, right? Um, responsible, managing your home well, sober-minded, self-controlled, reasonable, hospitable, thought of well by outsiders. That means unbelievers. Aren't those things that all Christians should aspire to? Yes, they are. And that's why elders are to be an example. In other words, Jeremy Ryan said this, a church should be able to direct a newborn believer to an elder and say, do you want to know what a real Christian should be like? Then look at him. So all of those things... And I'm going to skip through this. I had some review. If you did not hear the message from last week, these are really important messages in the life and for the future of our church. You can go to our website, www.gracelifeflorida.com, and you can download that message. Uh, I'm not going to review. We don't, we're not going to have time today to review what we talked about there. But I will say this. There is a leadership crisis in the church today. We hear about it. We see it. Some of us have even felt it. You've been a part. Somebody came up to me after the sermon last week and said, I was in one of those churches before I moved here, and it was just devastating. But there's a crisis. There's sexual scandals. There's addictions, financial frauds, exp uh, embezzlement, all kinds of things that you see. And because of that, when we began to talk about leadership, the world just rolls its eyes, and some people in the church do, and say, why bother? People are suspicious, and that's why it's even more important that we look at these qualifications and make sure, make sure that elders uh, are fit to lead. So point number one, okay? What are the qualifications here? Point number one is desire. Let's look at this one together. If you have your bulletin, you can just turn that over. 1 Timothy 3, chapter 1, he says, The saying is trustworthy. And again, I could go back and say, Paul's saying here, this is true no matter what time, what century, what people, what race, or ethnicity, doesn't matter. This is true. This is a faith. Uh, this is a trustworthy and faithful saying. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. This means literally to reach out, to long for something. Okay, this is a desire. This is like a burning or a burden inside a man 
that God gives to want this office. He wants to shepherd. Um, there's nothing shameful about this calling, but here's what's interesting about it. He says, if a man aspires to this work, he says, it's a beautiful work. That word means beautiful. It's a noble work that you're being called to, but it is work. It's sacrificial. It's a burden. It's going to require sacrifice and time and energy and sweat and tears and sleepless nights. Uh, this is not just somebody that says, you know what? I'd love to be up there in the spotlight and I had the gift of gab and I don't know, I'd like to have some authority and I'd like that position. Paul's like, then this is, this is not for you. No, it's the work. It's the shepherding road that you feel this longing. Your heart stretches out to it. But Paul says it's not a shameful thing either. It's a beautiful thing. It's a noble thing. In the passage we looked at last week, Paul said that, or excuse me, Peter rather, he said that an elder um, serves willingly, not under compulsion. In other words, he desires this work. This is a passion of his. He wants to be a part of maturing and building up and discipling the body of Christ. Um, and Timothy is hearing the same thing from Paul here. He's saying this is a noble work that a person desires. There's an inner desire that's so compelling that a man knows God's calling me into this role. Um, and as we, as we look at all the qualifications here, it's really interesting to me. Um, there's the people that were around as elders. There's the world. There's the church. And then there's the home. Okay? The world, the church, the home. And where do you think uh, that the apostle Paul would start with the qualifications? He starts at home. And that's point number two. See, going to be a fast sermon today, okay? Point number one, who's qualified to serve as an elder? One, men with desire. Men who desire that work. Number two, men with godly character. I told you there are 16 qualifications that are listed in this passage. And do you know that 14 of them deal with moral quality? They deal with integrity. They deal with personal holiness. And what's so interesting to me is the first thing that Paul tells Timothy is not, hey, go to the people that he works with and see what their view is of him. He doesn't say even go to the church and interview all the members there and, and see how this man has served there. You know where he goes first? He goes to the home. He goes to the most intimate, personal relationship uh, in the world, which is a man with his wife. Check it out. Look at this. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. So the first thing he says here is he must be above reproach, and that's just the heading on this long list. Above reproach, you know what that means? It means not able to be held. Not able to be held. If somebody came and arrested me, drug me out of my house in the middle of the night and said, Mrs. Clayton, uh, we're sorry to tell you this, but there's been multiple allegations against your husband of grand auto theft or, or whatever, or murder, or I, I don't know, assault, and uh, we're going to hold him. Chief came and arrested me, drug me down to the cell, and he said, we're going to be holding him uh, for the next 24 hours. In Greek, the picture there is they wouldn't be able to hold me past 24 hours. Why? Because nobody can corroborate those accusations. They're not going to stick, right? They're going to be overturned. It's going to be shown to be a, a, a farce. It won't stick. It, it really means two things. Criminally, not able to be held because the, the, the charges are not accurate. They're false. But secondly, it means accusations. Have you guys ever, I know we're in Florida and it never snows here, but I'm from the south and it snows every year. And I love, love, love it when snow would fall. We would ask our mom and dad, mom, dad, 
Does it accumulate? I never, I never even knew what that word meant as a kid. I just knew that was a good thing if it did, right? Do you know what snow that accumulates does? It sticks together, right? And when you throw a snowball that's made with accumulated snow, I don't guess you can make another kind if it doesn't stick together. You know what happens when you peg your brother in the face? It sticks. That snowball, that, that thing you're, you're throwing sticks, that's, that's the other tense of this word. If somebody makes an accusation against an elder about a moral uh, imperfection or flaw that's glaring, it's like a snowball that doesn't accumulate. It falls right. It won't stick. An elder would be the last person in the world that you would hear an accusation and say, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I can see that. He's a flirt. He's greedy. He's got a lust problem. I see him looking at his computer all the time and it's not good. No, an elder is above reproach. That means he has unimpeachable integrity. He can't be held because the charges are false. The accusations won't stick. And then underneath that heading is all these things beginning with his relationship with his wife. And this is where I hope, I think the true meaning of this, I hate to say this, I think the true meaning of this little phrase has been lost and buried under a layer of complexity. Men and women going back and forth. Um, well, what about, what about this? It's just talking about polygamy. The word, the phrase in Greek means one woman man or husband of one wife. I think that's what the ESV says. He must be, let's see, husband of one wife. So everyone wants to debate about, well, how does divorce fall into this? And that's a good question to ask, by the way. A lot of people think, ask that question. Can a divorced man serve as an elder? And the answer to that is Paul doesn't address that here. He really doesn't. If he wanted to talk specifically about divorce, remarriage, and all of that, there are some very clear other words he could use and phrases. No, what he's talking about here is... Uh, the context of this is present faithfulness to a spouse. It's talking about, is he faithful? Does he honor the covenant of marriage with his wife? Because listen, honestly, there are some men who have been divorced um, that would qualify to serve as an elder. And there are some men who have been married to the same woman all their life and they wouldn't qualify. So this goes much, be, much further than that. And, and by the way, the answer would be, can a divorced man serve as an elder? The answer to that would be, that depends why was he divorced, <laughs> right? I mean, it would be a case-by-case -case basis. So this is not talking about that. I believe, obviously, divorced men, and I say obviously not because I'm divorced, because I'm open to men who have undergone a divorce being able to serve as elders here, depending on the reason why, and depending on uh, their current faithfulness and relationship to their spouse. So that's a short answer to a really complicated and complex question that a lot of people ask. But it would all depend on what were the reasons, and that's something that we would talk about. But it's interesting to me that the Apostle Paul doesn't go to work, he doesn't go to the church, he goes into the home. He goes into the home and he wants to know, how does this man treat his wife? Does he love her? Is he faithful to her? Does he honor her? Is he sacrificial? Does he treat her like Christ treats the church? Is, is, is marriage vows held in honor in his home? And then he also asks this question. He says, does he manage his household well? Are his children kept in submissiveness? All those things fall under the rubric of how does this man manage his house? And you know why the Apostle Paul asked that? He says at the very end of this passage, it's interesting to me, he begins and ends this list with his wife up at the top and his home and his children at the bottom. And look at the question he asked. He says, he must manage his own household well, verse 4, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, 
For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? In other words, if you want to know whether or not an elder uh, is called and gifted and able to shepherd, look at, his, look at his family. Look at his home. Look at the way he shepherds his children. Is he an angry man? Is he violent? Does he lead his family with, with a, a, an iron fist like I've heard somebody say before? Well, that's not commendable. Are you children obeying because they're scared to death of you? That's not a good shepherd. That means you're going to shepherd the church the same way. And I've known shepherds like that. Have you? You're going to obey because, dadgummit, you better be scared of him. If you cross him, it's going to be hell to pay. Some shepherds shepherd that way, and that's not a shepherd after Christ's heart. Are we tender? Are we compassionate? Are we empathetic? Are we understanding? Are, are, we, are we seeking um, to be understood, or are we seeking to understand when a conflict arises? Those are two different things. Um, and let me just throw this out as a footnote. I do not think that Paul is saying here that unmarried men can't serve as elders, okay? He's simply giving a checklist for ways that you can test them against these qualifications. And if a man is married and has children, that's the first place you would go, okay? So he's not saying that a man has to be married to be an elder, nor is he saying uh, that a husband and wife have to have children in order for the man to serve as a pastor. But I can tell you what he's certainly not saying. He's not saying that you have to take a vow of celibacy to serve as an elder, okay? Just want to throw that out there and make sure everyone knew that. It's good, and, and it's right, and it's okay for pastors to have a wife. In fact, I would not be in ministry if it weren't for Sarah. I wouldn't be a pastor without her. I couldn't do it. There's no way. No way. So, uh, point number one, men with a desire. Point number two, men with godly character. Um, and we talked about the marriage. We talked about the home. Husband of one wife. Um, and let me just say this. There is a really well-known pastor in America. In fact, at one time, he was known as America's favorite Bible teacher. Had a huge ministry. His emphasis was on suffering. And he was a gifted teacher. Very gentle. He was on TV all the time. Uh, it seemed really sound and solid theologically. Um, and had a, a large following. Was able to, to minister to and, and help a lot of people. Um, and everything looked great with his ministry until... His wife uh, filed for divorce, and she wanted to separate from her husband. And man, this guy had been teaching for years that if a divorce ever happened, a man should step down from the pulpit and, and get out of ministry, right? And so whenever he refused to do that, it was a huge controversy at his church. And his wife wouldn't say much. She was, I think she was scared, but years later, she was interviewed, and I'm going to quote her, okay? She finally wrote a letter to the church after an interview after she was asked to explain her reasons for wanting a divorce, and this is what she said. She said, I have experienced, and I'm quoting her, I have experienced many years of discouraging disappointments and marital conflict. My husband, in effect, abandoned our marriage. He chose his priorities, and I have not been one of them. Now, she wasn't talking about adultery. You know what she was talking about? This man chose the church over his own wife. He chose ministry over marriage. And that's a much more subtle form of abandonment, but it is an abandonment. And the Apostle Paul is writing Timothy and saying, look, this man must understand if he's married, he must understand the vow he made to his wife, um, the promise he made to her, the covenant he made with her, and that takes priority. That relationship takes priority over all others. And even if you're abandoning your wife for ministry, Paul would say you're not qualified. You're not qualified to be an elder. So let's look at the next things here. And these are going to go fast, okay? Next one is sober-minded. Look at verse 
2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, and then right after that, self-controlled, and right after that, respectable. And those three things really go together. Sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. It, it, it means to be alert. Sober-minded means, it, it's, it's a word for alcohol in the New Testament, and it means unmixed. Mixed without wine. It means your judgment is not clouded. Now, not, it's not talking about drunkenness. He'll talk about that in a little bit later. He's talking about you have very clear objective thinking. Your judgment is not clouded. You're discerning. You're able to make decisions. It has kind of a military connotation too. You're alert. Man, the church was in persecuted times when Paul wrote this. And he said, look, you are alert. You're not passive. You're not out to lunch. You really understand what's going on in the church. And you're able to make clear and informed and decisive uh, judgments on matters that are important. So number two, self-controlled. I mean, that's a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, right? That means that you are sensible, you're calm, you're in control of your spirit, you're not being led by your emotions, you're not being led by your feelings all the time. It means that you're not impulsive, you're not rash. Self-control is the ability to do the important thing rather than the urgent thing. Can an elder tell himself no when it matters? I mean, man, that could be applied in a whole variety of instances, especially with his covenant to his wife, right? Can you say no to strong fleshly impulses? Do you listen well? Here's another application. Do you listen well or do you talk over others? When you have something really important to say, are you self-aware enough to listen and not, not be rash, not talk over the other person? All those things fall under that rubric of sober-minded, self-control, and then respectable. That just means you're, you're an organized person. You have an orderly life. You're disciplined. Those things are important for an elder. The next qualification is not addicted to alcohol, and I'm not going to talk about this a whole lot other than to say this. It doesn't say you can't drink. In some churches, and I understand, I'm from the South, and I can tell you this, dead honest with you. If you were in the South, especially in my hometown, and you were the pastor of a church and everyone knew who you were, and you walked into the grocery store, and you walked out, and you had a six-pack of beer, you'd be in trouble. You could lose your ministry over that in my hometown. You could with certain people. You may get away with walking out with a bottle of wine, maybe. <laughs> maybe, but people would raise their eyebrows. And that's because that's a different culture, and I think you need to understand the culture that you minister in, right? You need to have your finger on the pulse, and in some places have a lot of legalism. But listen, Paul never said you can't drink. And so I'm certainly not going to say that because I don't believe that. But he does say this. The Greek phrase used here, it means you don't linger beside wine. Your reputation is not, hey, you know, you know that elder? Heck yeah, man, that guy's a drinker. That shouldn't be the first thing that comes to people's mind, right? That doesn't go with sober-minded, self-controlled, or respectable. It's just you're always, you're always under the influence. You're always seeking to get a buzz. You can always be found with a drink in your hand or a beer in your hand. It's not wrong to drink. But for an elder, uh, not to linger long or not to be beside wine all the time. You're not addicted to alcohol. Not violent. And I'm sorry if I'm geeking out a little bit on, on you here, given all these Greek meanings. These are important. Um, not violent, it literally means this. You're not a striker. <laughs> you're not a striker. What does that mean? It means, man, you have a temper that you can control. You don't lash out in anger, Right? You don't get furious if somebody levels an accusation or criticism at you. You don't come to blows with them quickly. You have control of your own spirit. 
A good leader, Chuck Swindoll said, a good leader knows how to take the heat without spreading the flames. The next one is that you're gentle. And that goes hand in hand with not being violent, right? You're gentle. You're a man who's been softened by God's grace. You have what one person called a sweet reasonableness to you. You're not easily provoked. You quickly forgive people. You don't keep a list or hold a grudge of wrongdoings. You're not hot-headed. You've been seasoned with grace. Disagreement from somebody doesn't make you feel threatened. You would welcome that, and you'd want to talk about it. Um, and one man that I love, Gunnar Gunnarsson, he said this, the way a man conducts himself in conflict will mark his reputation and his relationships for weeks, months, even years to come. In every conflict, trust is earned or lost. Guys, that's so true. And again, this is important for you whether you have aspirations to be an elder or not. Every single time you encounter a conflict with somebody, you are either gaining their trust or you're losing their trust and their confidence. The way you handle yourself in the midst of a conflict will, will, will accompany you the rest of your life. That's why really, when you study all these qualifications, and it, it's about holiness and it's about integrity. And to me, I view integrity this way. Integrity, you've got one shot. It's like a balloon or a, a pane of glass in the front of a window. All it takes is one rock that goes through it and it's over. All it takes is for a balloon to be pricked by one pen and it's done. It's over. You get one chance at it. That's why these are so important that you're above reproach, that there's unimpeachable integrity there. There's no blight or stain that would mar your, uh, your reputation and that would, would bring disrepute and reproach on the name of Jesus. So you're not quarrelsome. That's the next one. You know what this word actually is? There's the word macho, right? Everybody thinks that uh, that's just some American coined. No, it actually comes from a Greek. This word is ah macho, which means not macho. So the, the macho man, Randy Savage, anybody else grow up watching him? He, he couldn't be an elder, okay? <laughs> you're not macho. You're not a type A, alpha male, beat your chest, power broker, abusive, bullying. No, you, you are not quarrelsome. Uh, you don't like to argue. You don't have to win an argument. In fact, you're reluctant to fight. Um, next quality is this. You're not a novice. You say, What's, why is that there? I, I grew up playing Atari, and there was always... You guys remember that? I never knew what novice was when I was little, except you want to move it over to novice, right? Expert or novice? I'm like, it's a lot funner if you're a novice, right? But when it comes to an elder, novice is not good. What does that mean? It means he's a brand new convert. Just fresh, out of the world, out of the pagan pool. He's just a, a basic, just understands the gospel and that he's a child of God. He doesn't need to be put in a position of leadership yet. It's not fair to him. It's not fair to the people. And you know what? This happens a lot. It happens especially the church is tempted when a big-name celebrity gets saved and makes a profession of faith, right? When Justin Bieber becomes a Christian and suddenly they want to send Justin Bieber on this circuitous speaking tour around the United States. And then, you know, and I'm just, just hypothetically here, right? <laughs> Six months later, he's, he's abandoned the faith or he's done something scandalous and people... People in the world are scratching their heads saying, see, that was all a facade and he's a hypocrite, just like the rest of the Christians. No, there's protection against this because look what he says here. Um, let me find it here. It's at the bottom, sorry. He must not be a recent convert, verse 6, or he may become puffed up with conceit. See, you're protecting him and fall into the condemnation of the devil because the devil's sin was what? Pride. Pride. 
So that's the next one. And then um, not a lover of money. Let's look at that one. Not a lover of money. I don't need to say a whole lot about that. If you're in the position of an elder because you're greedy and you're hoping for a lucrative career, just, just go ahead and get out. <laughs> okay? um, it's, it's not, this person can't have uh, greed and lust in their heart for power, for money, for things. They can't be a, a materialist. That can't be an enormous struggle for them because, number one, they're not gonna find, you're not going to find that if you're serving as an elder. And especially, listen to this, it's important that I say this, when I talk about elders, you guys may, may think of just uh, mini-me's, right? A bunch of people that are preaching and teaching every week. Actually, Paul is giving a list here to help Timothy with something called lay elders. Lay elders actually aren't even on the payroll. Did you know that? I'm going to submit two men's names at the end of this service for your consideration for elders here. We want to appoint them. They come with my full recommendation. But listen, they're not going to be an added burden financially to this church. They're not going to be an added expense. They're going to serve willingly, freely, without being paid. Um, they're definitely not doing it for the money. But some people do get compensated, like me, for being an elder. And this church takes very good care of me, and I'm grateful. Um, but if I'm in this for greed, and if I'm lazy... And if I'm a procrastinator, and if I'm apathetic and indifferent, Paul says, this is not a position for you. You don't meet the qualifications. So those are, the, uh, those are 12, 13 of the above reproach qualifications. And I want, to mention, I want to mention just two more, and then we'll move to the last point. It says that this man must be hospitable. It says that he must be hospitable, and it also says that he must be well thought of by outsiders, those outside the church. That's interesting to me because hospitable would mean he loves strangers who are Christians. That's what it would mean in the New Testament. So he's talking about how is he viewed in the church, and then he says he must be thought well of by outsiders. How is he viewed by people outside the church? So together, those things mean this. This person is around people. He's not a hermit. He's not a recluse. He's not studying the Bible 24 hours a day up in his ivory tower. He's actually around people. People know him. They know who he is. They see him. They interact with him. And it, to be hospitable, you don't even have to have a house. Did you know that? Jesus was hospitable, but he didn't have a place to lay his head, the Bible says, right? It, it doesn't mean you have a big house, but it does mean this. You have a big heart. You love people. You welcome them. They feel comfortable around you. They want to be around you because who wouldn't if you meet these qualifications, right? But it also means this, not just the people in the church. It means the people in the world that you're around. Maybe family. Maybe you have unsaved family members that aren't in the church. Maybe you work at a place where there's, you're the only Christian there. And you know what? Paul would say, what do the people at work think about him? If they heard that he was going to be an elder in the church, would they say, oh my word, you've got to be kidding me. The guy's a jerk. He's a colossal jerk. And seriously, there's some people that would, that would be the case. It's like they're angry, um, they're stingy, they're a gossip, they complain. I was driving my car down I-4. This is just, I'm throwing this in for free, okay? Because I think about this for me. This standard, ways I've fallen at this. I'm driving my car down I-4, the most dangerous highway in Florida, some say in the world, okay? It's 10 o'clock at night. I got some of my most precious cargo with me in the back, my two oldest boys, all of a sudden, right in the middle of traffic. And if you've driven on I-4, it's 80-mile-an-hour missiles, right? So I'm like, boys, calm down. Stay calm. They're like, huh, what are you talking about? And so I, I go over on the side of the road as best I could, maneuver, navigate, get on the shoulder. 
And I pull out my insurance card and I call the free, thank God, for free roadside assistance, right? So I call this number up and I'm like, look, I'm stranded on the side of the road. Cars are going 80, 100 miles an hour. My little car is shaking and I've got a flat on the side that the traffic's on and I need help. And he's like, no problem, sir. First of all, I had to wait 10 minutes and listen to elevator music. And I had to input my policy number a couple of times so that when I finally got a live operator, they would already be ready, right? Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. Ten, el- ten minutes of elevator music. I'm panicking. I'm scared to death. Kind of lost my man card on this one, honestly. Finally talked to a live operator. He's like, sir, do you have your policy number? I'm like, finally. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I already inputted it. Whatever. Yeah, here it is. Here's the policy number. He says, okay, what is the make and model of your car? And I said, oh, Honda Mazda. Or Honda Mazda. <laughs> I got Mazda, what year? 2009, what color? I'm like, what? Burgundy. And he said, what's your address, sir? And I'm like, look, dude, (laughs) I'm just being honest with you guys. This is your elder, okay? I'm like, look, man, um, I gave you my policy number. All of this should have popped right up on your computer screen there. He says, yeah, but we have to make sure this is you. That's, uh, okay, okay, yeah, it's, uh, I live at this address. And then he's like, what's your VIN number? I'm like, my VIN number? I'm like, dude, my car is vibrating right now. I'm scared to death, man. I said, at, at any minute, I'm bracing for impact with my kids here. I said, can you please get me some roadside assistance? And he said, sir, as soon as you answer the question. I'm like, dude, I got to get out of my car to look at the VIN number. It's in the side of your door, right? It's, it's in nine places in your car, they say. And you can look through the windshield and see it on a sunny day, barely. Um, and he said, sir, it should be on your card that you're holding. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah, it is. So I read, the, I read that to him, and then he said, okay, well, where are you? And I'm like, dude, I don't know where I'm at. I'm, on, I, I don't, I'm in Orlando. I'm in DeBerry. I don't have any idea. I don't, there's no exit here. I, can't you ping my phone or something? Didn't it say in the elevator music that you guys could do that? And he said, yeah, let me send you a text to give you instructions. So he sent me this, you know, dissertation. And, and seriously, man, I'm, I'm, I'm tired. I'm scared. I'm angry. I'm ready to be home. And so this text just, just set me off. And the, uh, what do they call them? The Rangers for I-4. One of them pulled up right behind me. It had nothing to do with my insurance. They're not responding. This was a separate service. It's really cool. Because of the I-4 ultimate project for a 20-mile span, they provide that service free to you. So if you ever have a flat, hit star 347 and they will accommodate your need. But, but anyway, that's an aside. So this guy pulls up and man, I got to be honest. I said it with some smug satisfaction. I'm like, you know what? Somebody else is here to help me. I can't talk anymore. Click, and I hung up. And I felt righteous doing that. It felt, it felt good. Have you ever done that? It really felt good. And then this guy came. He fixed my flat, s- sent me on my way. And I'm driving home, and I got like an hour left. And man, I just, I was convicted. I was convicted. I thought, you know what? That guy doesn't know me from Adam. But if he Googled my name... Now, I'm sure they're accustomed to getting talked to like that, you know? Kind of like the DMV and probably 911 and all the other people that answer phones. Um, but I, he could have Googled my name and said, oh, this guy's a pastor. Yeah, yeah, should have figured that. Should have figured that, like all the other hypocrites. So I was convicted. Now, this story has a happy ending. I called, I called back, and, you know, they probably have a 1,000 operators, and I'm like, hey, is, uh, is Joe there? And she said, he's on the phone right now. Uh, and I, she said, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I need to apologize to Joe. <laughs> I said, I was a jerk to Joe. I was pretty mean to the guy. And she said, you are the only person. She got really quiet. She said, you're the only person. I've worked here forever. 
And you are the only person who has ever called back here to apologize. She said, you have no idea, no idea, sir, the, the calls that we get, how angry. And I said, oh, no, I, I have a pretty good idea. I, I actually do. And she said, you know what? He's on the phone, but this would make his night. Can you hold? And I said, I'll wait forever. And I did. I waited forever. It was like 30 minutes later, and Joe picked up the phone. So anyway, I don't want to belabor the point, but I ended up talking to his supervisor. And I said, man, is there anything I can do to, to make this up to you? And he said, yeah, 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 hang on a minute, man. <laughs> and so a lady said, I'm Joe's supervisor. How can I help you? Is everything okay? And I'm like, you need to give Joe a raise because of jerks like me. But anyway, all that to say this, all that to say this, the restaurant that an elder goes to, if you talk to their waitress or their server, or the people that serve under an elder at a secular vocational place, what would they say about them? Do they have a good reputation? Do they represent the, the character, the redeeming character of Christ, or do they not? Excuse me, or do, they, or do they not? That's what this really talks about. So are they hospitable? Do they love people? Are they well thought of by outsiders? All of those things uh, matter. And that's why... So Paul and Barnabas, you know, their model of church planning was they would go into a city, they would preach the gospel, they would make disciples. Verse 22, they would strengthen the souls of the disciples, encourage them to continue the faith. And then in verse 22, and then they would appoint elders... They would appoint elders in every church. That was the last thing that they did to make that church able to stand on its, on, on its own two feet. And that's what we want to do too. We want to appoint elders here. Can everybody see this? These are the two Grace Life elder candidates that I want you guys to consider. Both of them are married. This is Stephen Beth Ekman. They're right out here in the audience. Don't want to embarrass you guys, but they're right out there. Uh, Joe and Marilyn are in Memphis with their grandson at the St. Jude... Uh, marathon this weekend. Um, but I want you to do this, and this is at their request, okay? They wanted me to put their name up there and put their contact information up there. They want you to interact with these qualifications. Now, most of you already know them, and that's because they are hospitable, and they're around, and they're already serving in various roles as well as their wives, and they've served this church since, since they've been a part of it. Um, but We'll put this, Melissa, remind me, we can put this slide in, in our Monday mail out this week. They want you to have their contact information. And if you have any questions, if you have any concerns, uh, if you just want to meet up with them, they would love the opportunity to do that. And you can email them, you can call them. If you want to include me, if you have a concern and want to widen the conversation, please contact me because, listen, guys, this is not a church that I want things done secretly, tucked away in a corner. The elders that we choose and appoint and install will have implications for this whole church. This is a good thing. It's something to be celebrated. It's something to be done out in the open. And so I don't know when, maybe next week, maybe a couple of weeks, we're going to bring them up here. Um, we're going to lay hands on them and we're going to install them. But before we do that, I want you to pray for them. Pray for their wives. Pray for their children. Some of them, that, well, they both, all, both sets of, of uh, couples here have grandchildren. Pray for them uh, and pray for this church to benefit from them being ordained, okay? And we'll circle back around tomorrow and, and put, this in the, put this in the mail out. Um, and the final point is this. This is a bonus point, okay? Elders are men who trust in Jesus. Because let's be honest. Does anybody meet the qualifications in this? Could, could it truly be said that, that an elder has never once raised his voice? Right? Been impatient with his children? Yelled at his wife? Let his eyes wander when an attractive woman walked by. I mean, I'm just being honest, guys. Could it be said that there are elders who would actually flawlessly meet those, uh, all those 
above reproach qualifications and never stumble or be weak in one moment of one point. No, it's not true. This is not talking about sinless perfection because only Jesus would, would meet that list, right? No, these are men who are trusting Jesus. What does that mean? That means that, and this is for everybody, okay? We're about to celebrate um, communion and we're about to receive communion. Those are two words we like to use here. We celebrate the Lord's Supper and we receive the Lord's Supper. What does that mean? That means this is a reminder that the righteousness of Jesus Christ is our only hope. Amen? The Bible talks about being clothed and covered in the righteousness of Christ. We need somebody's perfect righteousness. We don't have our own. But God requires that we have it. And that's what Jesus came to do. He lived a perfect life that, that none of us could live. Listen, I couldn't offer up to God the best 10 minutes of my life. I couldn't. I don't even know if I would have the best 10 minutes. When I'm reading my Bible and praying, just feeling really spiritual, I wouldn't dare offer that to God uh, as, as my standing before Him because it's flawed. Charles Spurgeon said, there's enough sin and your best prayer to condemn you to hell forever. That sounds harsh, but that's just the truth. We're all flawed. We have sins that we're even blinded to. But no, the Bible says we're trusting in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that includes these elders. We don't perfectly meet these qualifications, but we know who does. And we're looking to him for help and for hope and for power. And our church is looking to him for the same reasons.